Rebecca Valley has witnessed the very beginning moments of hundreds of adoptions, starting with her three children, now young adults. Those three vastly differing experiences prompted her to create a program that standardized care for potential adoption and placements in the hospital, training healthcare professionals about the wedding and the funeral that happens in the same room. The program has grown from one hospital to dozens in states around the country, and Rebecca is now advocating for the Improving Adoption Outcomes Affordability Act, working its way through Congress. Here's what you need to know about all that, along with some poignant adoption stories Rebecca has been privileged to witness. Welcome everyone to this episode of The Long View. This is a podcast brought to you by the people at adopting.com. I'm your host, Lori Holden, author of The Open-Hearted Way to Open Adoption and longtime blogger at lavenderlose.com. I'm a mom through domestic infant adoption to a daughter and a son now in their late teens. And let me tell you, it's been a ride. Think of any road trip you've taken. There are ups and there are downs, and it's always an adventure. You're always glad for the trip, and afterwards you might on occasion end up thinking, if I knew then what I know now. Regarding your adoptive parenting journey, we aim to help you know now. In 2004, in a suburb of Denver, Rebecca Valley created the first hospital-based adoption support program in the nation, which has been recognized as defining best practice in handling the complex emotional and logistical needs present in infant adoptions in the hospital setting. You'll find out why she was prompted to do so as her story unfolds. Then in 2015, Rebecca founded the Family to Family Support Network as a pro-education nonprofit organization. Following nationwide interest in the program housed only at one hospital, Rebecca created the organization to be able to implement the program in hospitals across the country. Rebecca has a master's degree in education, was a parenting instructor with Centura Health for 17 years, and is the mother to three amazing kids, now all legal adults, who all came through home through infant adoption. In addition, Rebecca was named the Angels in Adoption Award winner for the state of Colorado and was honored in Washington, D.C. by Congressman Mike Kaufman in 2011. She also was the host of the weekly radio show Adoption Perspectives on Denver's 670 KLTT from 2010 to 2015. And most importantly, Rebecca is one of my heroes and one of my guides and my dear friend. Now, Rebecca is actively involved in a bipartisan bill. How often do we get bipartisanship these days? A bill that is working its way through Congress right as we speak. It's a bill that can make what I call adoption world better in so many ways as it is pro-education and it helps make adoption more ethical and thereby more affordable and just better in multiple ways. We're going to dig into all of that. Welcome, Rebecca. Thanks so much, Lori. This is so fun. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to see you. We're, we're looking at each other. <clears throat> so let's start by telling us briefly about your path to motherhood and then your path to advocating for people involved in adoption on Capitol Hill. How did you get there? question. I ask myself that every day. Um, my story as a parent was um, through the Avenue of Infertility with my husband. Um, we were both teachers and had watched, you know, we, we always joke we were the world's greatest parents with no children. Teachers often are like that when they don't have kids. Well, I would never do that. And it's just so funny in retrospect. Um, but we really just thought, I think like so many, first comes love, then comes marriage and comes a baby in baby carriage. And when that didn't happen, um, it really rocked our world, rocked our marriage, 
rocked our faith. Um, it just was nothing we had expected we would be facing. And so um, after going through what we were comfortable with through the infertility world, we decided to adopt. Um, very soon after we finished our home study, we actually got a call. Um, we finished on Thursday and got a call on Tuesday that we'd been picked, um, which is crazy town. And we were told that there was a mom who had chosen us that was 10 days overdue and at the hospital and we were having a girl. So we joked that I drank wine in the tub and called everyone I know. And my husband went and played volleyball because that's what we do. So um, the next day we got to meet our daughter when she was four hours old and got to meet her incredible birth parents um, that were um, at that point, 22 and 24. And um, the staff just really um, supported us, gave us space to parent in the hospital. And people don't realize when you come out of infertility, you really don't feel like you qualify as a parent. Like you have these tapes in your head, like, um, you know, maybe there's a reason that I wasn't able to conceive a child. Is this the reason? Am I not going to be a good parent? And they just really were empowering to us and really kind. So we left the hospital. Um, our second child came home a little bit older and our third child, we met his mom when she was just seven weeks pregnant and she was a high school student at the high school down the street. She had heard um, facing her unplanned pregnancy. There was a couple that had um, adopted before that maybe she could talk to. And so I met her at Starbucks and we chatted and she at that point decided she wanted us to adopt her little one. So we did the whole pregnancy together and I was her childbirth coach and we did our baby shower and just had an amazing relationship. She's an incredible woman. She's now a nurse. Um, which is just so funny how this all flows together. Um, but we got to the hospital and it was just super awkward. I was super awkward. Um, I always think if I could sit with those nurses, they would be like, oh my gosh, you were such a nightmare. Um, because you realize once you kind of have expectations set and then that gets pushed back on and there's so much grief and, and emotion going on um, that you escalate. And so like, I think back, we have a videotape of us at the hospital and I refuse to watch it. Cause I'm like, Oh my gosh, I was such a nightmare. Um, but we really just, I started asking questions because my background was education. Like what kind of training is there for nurses in this complexity? And I found out at that point after conversations, there was no training and we call it the wedding and the funeral in the same room. And we know adoptions change. So when a mom wants the family to be there, um, all of a sudden we have this grief and this loss and this excitement. And then we're putting these nurses on the front line with no training in this concept and really asking them to just kind of wing it. And that's the number one phrase I hear from my nurses is they, they just wing it. Okay. So, wait a second. You said two really important things. You talked about the wedding and the funeral in the same room. And I want that to sink in and that nurses are expected to wing it in this highly, highly emotional wedding slash funeral situation. Absolutely. And the more I was in the adoption community, I would hear people criticize the healthcare professionals and saying, oh, they don't know what they're doing, et cetera. And I'm like, well, no one's telling them. It just felt so unfair to me. And I had already been in that situation where one nurse was really supportive and kind, and then there was a shift change. That one like, nurse. Duh, yeah. What's going to happen? Who's going to walk in the door? And that's just really hard to manage during that time. And like I said, I felt it was really unfair. So I started, I'd already started teaching adoptive parent classes, like newborn classes and CPR, and also kind of woven in some of my own grief work that I had done into those classes um, at a local hospital. And there's that sister hospital, um, another, well, how do I say that? Another sister hospital opened 
to my original hospital and asked me to bring my classes over. And I, I said, I really just want to build a program. Can I just come in and help when there's adoptions going on? And I kind of joke like a wedding coordinator for adoption. Like it's the big day and everyone's there and it's intense and they don't even know like where the bathroom is or how to work the buzzer to even get in. And they just needed a person. So that was the beginning in 2004 of the family to family adoption support program. Um, I spent 10 years, we did some really bad adoptions and some really good adoptions, but the biggest thing I did was sit with the families and say, what could we have done better? And that's really how this whole program was crafted, was feedback from families, from the moms, what was difficult, what was helpful, what was painful. Um, and so we just tried to make it better over 10 years. So um, do you have some stories that you can tell us from your time as a hospital as an adoption liaison in the hospital of how this program played out for adoptive families? Yeah, I have a lot of stories. Um, you know, what's interesting is that I have many families that started with family to family support adoption support program um, while they were in infertility. And so the beauty of the potential adoptive family side is that they get to come into a space that's outside of infertility to learn about adoption, to learn about ethical practices, and also to talk about the hard stuff around their grief. And that's what I never had. Like no one ever sat with me and said, filling the crib is not gonna cure your infertility. It's not gonna solve that. It's not gonna fill that hole in your heart. And I think, I, well, I know, I really thought that if I just filled the crib and I became a mom, that I wouldn't have any more grief and loss and, you know, I often say, if I'm adopting that child to heal my heart, that's a pretty dang big job to put on a baby. And so my husband and I went through a lot of just kind of the grieving over me being not being able to be pregnant. We always joke that he didn't have the same kind of grief because he always thought of parenting and adoption brought him parenting. But I always thought of parenting starting at pregnancy. And so there was this loss that um, I really had to deal with. So I get to kind of dig into that with my families before they ever enter the adoption world. Um, and I think that's key because when you're in a home study, it's hard to feel that you're not going to be judged if you say you still have stuff to work on. But in our environment, this neutral space of the hospital and these classes, they were able to open up and talk about those things. So I think that was really helpful. The other piece is just having a place for moms to look at adoption and parenting resources without any pressure. And I remember sitting with a, with a um, young mom and we met for coffee and she was like, I just feel like I owe it to this baby to look at what adoption might look like. And I, you know, I think I'm going to parent, but I'm not sure. And so we sat and kind of worked through everything and she ended up parenting and ended up giving her resources that I knew were available to her. But um, it just gives a safe space to do that. And I didn't have that. The moms that I've spoken with don't necessarily have that. And it became really important to me that it needed to be consistently offered across the country. Yeah, um, it's interesting that you're talking about your own grief and you were on the wedding side of the equation. And this program also deals with the grief on the funeral side of the equation, which is the birth mom or the patient in the hospital, the expectant mom who may place and full disclosure, I work with Family to Family Support Network in training in hospitals. So one of the things that um, is a feature of the program is that we, the room is designated as a room where something is, um, something's going on and there could be grief in this room. Do you wanna talk about that just a minute? Oh, no, so much of our program 
once you step into this space, and I really am thankful for the changes I've seen. You mentioned that my kids are all legal adults. I almost cheered when you said that, but um, they're 18, 20, and 22. And um, when you're in the space of moms choosing adoption, um, and I'm appreciative of the fact I see more of this online than I ever have, um, there is this you know, guilt and struggle that goes through with the potential adoptive family as they're taking that child home. But the loss that that mom is going through is so ambiguous and it's just never been defined before. And we know in healthcare that um, we've learned to do loss well. So we, we now have hospice. We don't have to have hospice, but we do it because it helps everyone kind of manage a really hard loss situation. We have bereavement programs that do that when there's an infant loss. We've learned that pictures and holding the child and um, keepsakes, all those things are really important. And so um, as we built the program at the hospital, we built in all of these best practices around grief. And when we watched our moms go through the grief of the decision they were making, we, we just saw that they dealt with it very similar to like say a hospice experience. So one of the things I train my nurses on is I tell them, I want you to think about a time where, you know, maybe your mom's passing away and you've got to call the siblings and you call one sibling and they say, you know what, I don't want to come. I can't, it's too hard. I just need to get through this. And you have another sibling that says, well, I'll come for a little bit, but then I'm going to leave. And then you have the sibling that sits at the bedside till the very last breath. And when we allowed our patients to go through the grief process and just at whatever process they needed in the hospital, we saw that. We saw some moms that didn't want to spend time with their baby. It was going to be too hard. We saw moms that kind of shared care in the hospital if they wanted the potential family, um, adoptive family there. And we also saw moms that held that baby and just drank in their moments of being mom the entire time in the hospital. And so when we can reframe it to a space of healthcare, understanding it as grief and loss, we can then allow our patients to really be in control of the entire process in the hospital. And that's, we talk about voice and choice a lot. How do we make sure the voice and choice stays in the space of that patient, whether that family's potential family's there or not, but that she has what she needs to go through that process. And that really made a huge difference. We used a book called Forever Fingerprints, with Sherry, made, um, done by Sherry Eldridge. And that book is uh, a story of a little girl, probably about eight, who's making sense of her adoption story because her aunt's pregnant. And they, her parents basically explained to her she was never closer to her birth mom than when her fingerprints were created. So when she misses her birth mom, she kisses her fingertips. And that's where she holds the connection to her and her birth mom. And so we used that book and we would do fingerprint ceremonies and we would have the moms put their fingerprints in the book and they, we'd give them two copies, one to go home with their child and one to go home with them. And they were able to write letters to their child in that book if they wanted to. And um, so here this potential adoptive families leaving with a book, we're telling families to talk about their, their child's story, but we really don't give them any tools to do so. So we give them this book and it has fingerprints of that birth mom in it, it has fingerprints of the baby in it. It has a letter from her at times. Um, and we know there's been moms that have passed away since then, that since that moment of them placing their child. And so I know that family now has a connection to help that child know their story. And um, I just think we, we've we lose that opportunity when we don't reframe what's going on in adoption with hospitals through the, the lens of grief. 
And I know that um, in hearing lots of stories online and on blogs and in memoirs that sometimes it's the adoptive parents who are the most grateful for those touchstones to birth parents for their child years after they're captured um, because that, that's, that's what there is. That's what there is available to help the child in the various stages work through um, their emerging emotions. They don't all happen in the hospital. They, this is a lifetime event. Well, and that reminds me of another story where I, I received a phone call from, uh, from a mom whose daughter was really struggling with her adoption story. And she'd been born at, at Parker Adventist Hospital. And she said, can we just come visit you? And I was like, absolutely. And so we walked through, we walked through the emergency room where her mom came through the doors. We went to the elevator bank where her mom went up to the labor delivery deck. We went to the room because we knew which room she'd been born in. And we were able to bring her in there and to um, talk through the process that her mom went through. Um, we, then, we then went downstairs and her mom said, you know, this is where I met your mom. Right here is where I met your mom. We sat on the couches right in this space. And her daughter just went over to the floor and laid, up, laid in the little fetal position and just laid there to be close to where her mom had been. And that adoptive mom sat with her and rubbed her back, didn't say a word, just sat there. And I thought this, I mean, talk about a profound moment. Um, I also, people joked I was always a paparazzi. I took pictures during this whole time. So she would have this, they've made it into a book for her um, because she's making sense of her story. And that's where she was in that moment. And there was some place for her to go to start making sense of what had happened with her and how she came home to this family and what had happened prior to. So I just think we, when we don't have a, a local tethered space for, for um, families, it, we just lose so much of the story and we lose so much that we could offer if we had a tether point like that. I love how this program really honors the connections and preserves the connections in so many ways so that um, over, the, over the years, um, pieces are available that, that people need. Um, let's move on to, you are working um, in, on a house bill. There's a house bill that you're going to tell us about. It's HR 3690. Who's sponsoring it? What does it mean? And um, how, why is it important for people involved in adoption? How much time do you have? Um, so HR 3690 is Improving Adoption Outcomes and Affordability Act. It is. It was crafted by Congressman Smucker's office, who's a Republican out of Pennsylvania, and is now co-sponsored by Congressman Phillips out of Minnesota, and he's a Democrat. So the bipartisan focus, and, and the beauty of this is you mentioned that I was um, awarded the Angel in Adoption from the Congressional Coalition Adoption Institute. And they are the largest bipartisan caucus on the Hill and focus on adoption and foster care issues. So I know that um, people may hear in passing what they do. It is incredible what they do. And when I went in 2011 and got to meet um, not only, to, I mean, really advocates across the country for children, for foster care and adoption. And um, I was so grateful because they really introduced me to the idea of being a voice for a population that doesn't have a voice. And so I think right now in our government, there's just so much um, divisiveness and anger and opinion. And 
um, this is something that all of us can come together and say this could be a really good thing, no matter where you are on the spectrum. You know, we stand very strongly on being a pro-education program ourselves. Um, that means the whole pro-choice, pro-life, like we have advocates on both sides that say, wow, I love what you do. And um, that is what, it was so exciting when I did find out about this bill. It was crafted in July of 2019. It happened because one of the staff members within Congressman Smucker's office had an experience where they were matched early on with a um, potential adoption in, I believe it was Florida, and they were matched with that mom for a long time. They paid for a lot of her resources she needed. They were, you know, hoping to adopt that child. And then um, as she has every right, she chose to parent in the end. And they started thinking, wait a minute, like this doesn't make sense that we're involved so early on. There needs to be something to fill that gap. And so they wrote this act. And um, I found out about it in November of 2019 when I was there at Angels. Um, I believe the year that you were honored, Miss Lori, for being an angel as well. Um, and am I right? It was 2019. I was the year before. Oh, 2018. All right. My bad. It's all blurring together. COVID, whatever. Um, so it was really this, um, this bill that when I read it, I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to fund what we know needs to be in place in hospitals. And it need, this money needs to be coming somewhat, from somewhere different. It needs to not be coming from adoption professionals. It needs to not be coming from potential adoptive families. It, it needs to be in a space with moms that are considering adoption, looking at their parenting options, getting into prenatal care in a neutral space that they don't feel pressure to make a decision based on their lack of understanding of what's available to them. So we talk about empowered decision-making being about education and access. So I can't make a decision if I don't know something's available. And if I, if I know it's available and can't get to it, what does it matter? So this really takes those two pieces and puts them together. And that's going to empower moms to make decisions, families to make decisions with all the information um, and knowing what's accessible to them. Love that. There's so many ways that this is um, this this bill should it become a law is just going to make adoption more ethical, cleaner. Um, what are some of the things it does for adopting and adoptive families? You mentioned that um, uh, you mentioned that we'll take some of the money out of it on the front end. What else? Which can be really. I mean, we talk about we talk about the ones and tens in our training. The ones are really pro. The tens are really anti of any given issue. And we see that ones and tens as far as ethical agencies and professionals too. Like some people, some agencies and resources out there are not ethical. They are corrupt. It is ugly. <laughs> They're the, the, this money hungry, blah, blah, blah. Um, or, and then you have some really good resources that are out there um, to help with supporting adoptions, but there's really no, there's no clearinghouse for that. I always joke, I can yelp about Thai noodles down the street, but I can't find out where to go for ethical adoption resources. And so that was one of the main things that I appreciate about it. It actually has um, three different main components. It would bring in training for hospital um, healthcare professionals to understand the nuances of adoption, which again is obviously the heart of what I want to do and what we do. Um, it makes accessible mental health services for moms 
prior to choosing adoption as they're exploring their options, but also post-adoption placement resources tethered to the hospital. And I feel really passionate that that's where those post-adoption placement resources should be because so many placements and matches are happening across state lines right now that there may not be a support group or support services for that mom in her local area and the adoption professional she's working with could be six states over. So if we have these resources tethered to where the baby is born and where that mom lives, that's gonna make it more accessible to her. And sometimes they don't want to go back to an agency or to an attorney or to that space where they went through this process to help manage their grief. I remember um, a mom that was in high school that delivered at Parker Adventist and she called me four months after she delivered and she was really upset and I said, you know, what's going on? And she said, well, um, I was writing an I am poem in my class and I wrote, I'm a mother, I am childless. And she just started bawling. And the teacher was like, uh, go to the counselor. And the counselor said, uh, who can you call? Well, her uh, support person at the agency, her counselor at the agency had since left the agency. So she went ahead and called me and we spent this time processing and trying to find out where we could get her mental health support because she was going through the grief and loss of this, I am a mother, but I'm childless. And they had no idea how to support her. And so the network of counseling and adoption competent therapists that can be around a space like this, again, education and access, right? So that would be huge. We also know, again, that's pre-placement and post-placement. The third major component is access to substance use disorder treatment. And so how do we meet them upstream and help them get tethered to treatment to better outcomes for them and their baby? They don't have to choose adoption to be able to utilize those resources, but it's something that's available to them while they're establishing prenatal care, getting the support they need with mental health resources, tethered to that healthcare system, and then what can we do as far as helping them know about substance use disorder treatment and making it accessible to them. So those are the three main components. And what I'm hearing you say too, is you're, you're emphasizing the tethering to healthcare. Um, back when you and I both went through the adoption process, there was a previous um, initiative and it was tethered to adoption agencies. So this is very different. Why is it so important to have this in healthcare and not tied with agencies? Great question. So, um, yes, the Infant Adoption Training Initiative, um, tens of millions of dollars was spent, and it was to make adoption accessible and resources accessible to women considering adoption. Um, and the, but the, bringer of, the bringers of the message, the trainers, were all adoption professionals. And not, I didn't really understand why it was such a struggle to get into hospitals and get healthcare education until I was in healthcare and on the inside looking out. And what ended up happening is when I'm in the inside of healthcare, let's say a doctor's office or a hospital, and I'm offered free education, and even to the point they started paying you $50 to attend because they couldn't get people to come, they're like, we'll even pay you. I'm like, oh, 50 bucks, that's pretty great. Um, but if I have that situation where someone offers me free education, in healthcare, free education comes in as marketing. So on Tuesday, I'd have a pharmaceutical company come, they'd bring lunch, free training about their product. Wednesday, the Infant Adoption Training Initiative comes in, brings free lunch, teaches, treat, teaches me all about adoption, says, call us if you have any women that are interested in placing, comes across as marketing. 
Then the third day, maybe we have a formula company that comes in, brings us lunch, free training. Let me tell you about my product. So it wasn't that, um, it was really the environment and the way they receive information that was detrimental. Because healthcare, when you're offering free education, you're trying to sell a product, you're trying to make more money. And so that's how it was perceived. And I talked with um, National Council for Adoption is in the process of writing a letter of support for this initiative and believes it absolutely should be tethered in healthcare, not in adoption agencies, which is super exciting because we've already spent $100 million trying to train in healthcare, utilizing that avenue. We need to have healthcare training, healthcare nurses training nurses about how to care for these nuances. That's what's going to be successful. What else do we need to know about HR 3690? Well, we're hoping that there will be a Senate companion bill that will ultimately be written. Um, this, like I mentioned, is a House bill. It probably will be reintroduced in Congress next year. Um, people can absolutely contact their congressman. If they want to contact a senator, let them know that we're hoping for a Senate companion bill. Um, going forward and helping them understand that this is better for everyone. This is better for moms that are expecting and struggling with their parenting plan. This is better for potential adoptive families. This is better for families going through infertility. And ultimately, this is so much better for the child to have all of these pieces together. You know, I, on my radio show, I used to say, adoption, open adoption goes well when everybody's well. <laughs> and, and we can start that in the very beginnings to make sure she has a safe space to have these conversations exploring adoption and parenting. And then we can move forward from there with her guiding us through the needs that she has. And this bill would actually give services for the first time to women considering adoption. We've never had a bill that saw this population the way this bill does. I love one of the taglines I've heard, um, family to family support number cues, which is we wanna send that baby home in secure arms. Absolutely. And, and that we don't have an opinion. How many moms I've worked with that I'm like, I don't care what you pick. I just really want you to be successful. And if that means making sure you have additional parenting resources, it means that we find a way to get you into substance use disorder treatment, that we find ethical adoption resources for you, that you know the questions to ask. Um, and open adoption is really hard. I shared with my husband this morning your concept, Lori, of the wedding versus the marriage. And he just started laughing. He was, man, that is so accurate. Like you think you're one and done and it's not like that. Adoption's not like that. You have this journey of multiple families and it all starts in loss. And so it's super complicated. Why I'm not, I'm not sure why we thought we could do it without added support because we certainly can't. Yeah. Um, we're going to put in the show notes, some more information on the bill. You have a, you've worked up a one page, um, uh, shortcut how to understand the bill. And then we'll also, um, this is getting great support from uh, birth mother groups. And um, through that, I think we have some templates on what what people can do to mobilize and start getting, uh, helping this bill work its way through the House and then the Senate, and hopefully someday getting a big signature. So um, that would be amazing. Yeah, it will be amazing. Um, <laughs> I want to, let's, let's start to wind down a little bit. I want to ask you the question that I ask all of my guests, and I want you, to, you, you have so much to bring in because you have your own personal experience as the mother of three, and then you have all this professional experience. You've probably personally witnessed hundreds of 
of placements and parenting and outcomes, various outcomes. And then you've heard of a lot more in all of the hospitals that have been trained. So you have so much going on. So from all that, what boil things down to your best piece of advice for adoptive parents about taking the long view? I, I would also throw in just the rich knowledge I gained from Adoption Perspectives radio show. We have those archived on our on our site because it became very clear to me in the hospital that you had kind of the potential adoptive parent camp, you had the birth parent camp, you had those who were parenting, you had the professionals. It was all very siloed. And um, I gained so much listening to adult adoptees sharing their journey, transracial adoptees, um, those that had gone through foster care, trauma-informed parenting specialists, just wishing I would have had information sooner. And that's what led to the radio show that I did. <clears throat> as far as an adoptive parent, it came from the radio show. Um, one of the biggest um, aha moments I had was talking to an adult adoptee. And she said to me, I brought up adoption with my mom once. And the look on my face told me, don't ever do that again. And she, she stopped. She never spoke about adoption again with her she mom. She shut down. Yeah, she shut down. And I just remember thinking, I never want to be that mom. And I remember so vividly my daughter and I having a conversation once we were talking about counseling. And I was telling her about my experiences with counseling. And I said, you know, well, your dad and I, when we found out we couldn't have kids, we totally went to counseling and did all kinds of work. And she goes, oh, yeah, you couldn't have kids. I'm sorry, what does that make us? And I just sat there and was like, and people use that term all the time. I couldn't have kids, so we adopted. And here's my daughter saying, I'm sorry, what does that make us? And I remember thinking, oh my gosh. And I go, oh my gosh, baby girl, what do you hear when I say that? And she said that you wanted a mansion and you got an apartment. And I remember just one, my heart breaking that that's what she would hear. And two, being so incredibly grateful that she felt safe enough to say, mom, do you understand what I hear when you say that? And I think that is the gift of listening to the voices of the adoptees. And the gift we can give our kids as parents is complete freedom. Now, if I get triggered by that, if I have my old wounds that open up, if I, whatever, I need to suck it up and deal with that later and be 100% present with her in that space and say, I am so glad you told me that. And I said, will you also give me permission to share that? And she has given me permission to share that because she said, yeah, mom, people say, well, she said, people say like that all the time. <laughs> we'll just leave it at that. She's like, you wouldn't believe all this stuff. You know, like, oh my gosh, you look like your mom, even though she's not your real mom. You know, all these comments. And I think I feel for that whole generation that didn't have a safe space to process that. And I always want to be that safe space for my kids. And, and I hope that I've done that. I feel like in those moments when they're willing to say that stuff and call me out, that I feel like maybe I've, I've done okay. Wow. You wanted a mansion and you got an apartment. Mm -hmm. It rips my heart when I hear that. And as awful as it is to hear it, the only worst thing would be to not hear it and to have it be there. So and when you that, think about it, I thought I was being like stellar, you know, adoptive mom being all open about my counseling stuff that I'd done. And then she was like, yeah, nice try. You know, and I just, I love, I love that about my daughter. I have no doubt that in the future that she'll have a voice for, again, those that don't speak about this stuff and, and how she can validate and say, oh, me too. Yeah, I, I felt like that. You know, she's got such insight. I've got multiple stories of her calling me out on stuff. So I think that's it. Being the safe space, dealing with your stuff, 
every time I taught, maybe we'll adopt classes. I was like, deal with your stuff, people. Like it is that beach ball you push down in the water. It's going to pop up somewhere else and it's going to get in the way of your relationship with your kids. So I think that, um, that's key when you're building a, a family around this concept of adoption that, that is different. People want to say it's the same, but it's not. There's a really tough road um, in this space. And the more we can be real with each other, the more healing that can happen. But we manage grief. We don't solve grief. We don't, we're not cured from grief. We manage it. And, and to be able to acknowledge that it's even there is the first step. And then to be able to um, give it space when, when the grief comes up when the big emotions come up, that's, that's what keeps us healthy. That's why people go to counseling is to get unstuck. And the stuckage is, I call it stuckage. The stuckage is from those emotions that we're, we think they're too painful to face. Yeah. Totally. And thank God I'm, I'm a safe person, you know, to be able to say that and know that even if there is parts of me that struggle, that I can still be a hundred percent in, mm. in that space with her and then move on and do my own counseling deal with your stuff people it's gonna come up (laughs) deal with your stuff people so that that might be boiling it down deal with your stuff people (laughs) (laughs) it's so true i mean and and the thing is is that our kids go through it and they see it in us and and whenever you've been around other people that have grieved um there is a connection and nuance that you can see that in one another and and she sees it in me and i see it in her and um it's made us incredibly connected because we stay in it together. I remember when my mom passed away in 2008 and my, I was sobbing and my kids all came in and were hugging me. And my, my daughter said at that point, 2008, she was 10 years old. She said, mom, we understand we lost our moms too. And we just sat there and cried together. And so that sacred grief space is something that I don't think many people are willing to sit in because it was hard. And it was hard to know that I, 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 my mom would never be replaced and I will never replace their mom. They saw that in me and we all sat together and cried. And like I said, she was 10. Like she gets it. Yeah. Grief is almost necessary to true intimacy, deep intimacy. You have to be able to walk through the tough times together and be vulnerable. Well, I appreciate your telling us about your personal story, (laughs) your um, creation of the Family to Family Support Network the advocacy that um and the bill that's working through tell us the name of the act again it's hr 3690 improving adoption outcomes and affordability act okay and your best piece of advice which it boils down to deal with your stuff people (laughs) yeah your safe space for your family and deal with your stuff yep thank you so much rebecca for talking with us today for having me Lori. this has been so fun loved it With each episode of Adoption Along View, we bring you guests that will expand your knowledge of adoptive parenting. Please subscribe, give this episode a rating, and share with others who are on the journey of adoptive parenting. Thanks to each of your listeners for tuning in and investing in your adoption's long view. May you meet everything on your road ahead with confidence, capability, and compassion.